You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on diagnosing back issues and performance horses with Dr. Christopher Elliott. I'm your host, Carly Sisson, Digital Editor of EquiManagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Mark Animal Health. Dr. Elliott was born and raised in Brisbane, Australia, and graduated from the University of Queensland's School of Veterinary Science in 2007 with first-class honors. Since then, he has become board-certified in sports medicine and rehabilitation. Elliott has experience working at FEI equestrian events in more than 20 countries. He has also been a private athlete veterinarian, team veterinarian, permitted treating veterinarian, and official veterinarian. Elliot was the veterinary services manager for the FEI competition at Wellington International for the 2023 Winter Equestrian Festival. In 2022, Elliot joined Palm Beach Equine Clinic, where he specializes in sports medicine and rehabilitation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Elliot, to talk about diagnosing back issues and performance horses. Yeah, hi. Nice to speak with you. Hopefully we can have a good chat. Yeah, I think this is a topic that many practitioners will encounter in sports medicine. So maybe do you want to start out with talking about some of the clinical signs that might indicate that a performance horse has a back issue? So clinical signs, more often than not, it's um, rider complaints or uh, you are discovering some palpation uh, abnormalities during a a thorough clinical exam uh, as a part of a normal kind of orthopedic exam. So I think more often than not, uh, poor performance is uh, a significant part of back pain issues. And when we're talking about poor performance, we are potentially talking about your difficulty performing particular uh, training regimes or particular movements, say whether it be uh, you know jumping, dressage, eventing, rider complaints saying you know horse is is having difficulty through uh, you know whether it be in the canter or through the trot or particular say dressage movements such as lateral work particular way or those generalized often non-specific poor performance type stories in the jumping world you know he's not jumping as well as as he used to be he's leaving rails down where he usually wouldn't or you know we're getting towards the end of a competition and we used to always be able to jump clear on a Sunday but now we're not you know all of those type of stories have lots and lots of different potential causes back issues are one of those potential causes Back issues are typically associated with movement problems, performance problems. Um, they are not typically associated with um, either asymmetry or, or, you know, obvious lameness type issues. They can be related to each other, but it's rare that a primary back pain is causing a lameness issue. Right. So when you're going out to look at a horse with a suspected back issue, what might that initial exam look like? So if a client's calling you out for a poor performance problem or they're, they're calling you out to say, you know, I think my horse has a sore back um, and, you know, the extreme cases of, of back pains are bucking, you know, rearing difficulty, mounting, all that type of stuff. I think typically 
our more advanced horses and our more advanced riders are hopefully calling you before then. But it's really important that when we are um, examining the back, we are thinking that the back is the connection between the front end and the back end. Um, it's also important to remember that it's one spine head to tail and they're all interrelated. The neck is related into the thoracic and then the lumbar and then into the lumbosacral and into the sacroiliac. And then also remember that all of our four limbs are the things that suspend and support that back in the air. So as a part of a thorough orthopedic exam, whether it be we're primarily thinking about the axial skeleton, neck to tail, or we're thinking about the limbs, we should always be palpating the back as a part of a thorough exam. So let's just take the example of coming out to see a back pain. So we're going to ask the history, what's happening with the horse, what does it do, so you get a gauge of the signs and symptoms and the things that your owner is concerned about. And then we're palpating the back as a part of the whole orthopedic exam, palpating neck, looking at flexibility and movement through the neck, palpating in through our back. So for me, my palpation of the back starts midline and I'm putting firm pressure through there and then I'm pressing in through the apaxial muscles on either side of the midline and I'm doing and then going down all the way over through to the pelvic region and then using uh, you know particular techniques to try and gauge how the back is moving and I'm palpating it from the left side as well as the right side trying to feel for um, any chains of muscle tone observing whether we have good muscle mass or reduced muscle mass, any asymmetry and then any pain type reaction, thinking, making sure that we've examined uh, the neck region as well as the pelvic region and then palpating all four legs because we just want to make sure we're not missing anything else. So that's our static exam for me. And then uh, we want to see the horse move initially in hand. So watching the horse walk up and back from behind and ideally from the side, um, we're looking for symmetry of movement, um, anything overtly abnormal in terms of that walk. And then we're looking at the way the back moves. Is it rigid? Does it have any type of movement, normal type of movement? Remembering that the back is going to go up and down because of the weight of our viscera just in the movement process. But we're trying to see whether it's not just going up and down, whether it's flexing and extending in through that back as well. And then watching the horse trot, ideally uh, trotting in a straight line to and away from you. And then ideally, if you can watch it from the side, that's really helpful. Seeing that movement in terms of not just up and down, whether the back is flexing and extending and if the horse is engaging that trotting on a hard circle uh, ideally on a lunge um, if it can't be a hard circle then on a soft circle seeing the quality of movement in the trot and in the canter in both directions and then watching the horse under saddle getting a gauge of what the rider is is feeling when they're up there and then seeing what you are seeing in terms of the quality of movement and then asking our rider potentially to try and replicate some of the movements 
um, or some of the training protocols that they are finding difficult so that you can see what they are doing and you can understand what they are feeling underneath them. Communicating with the rider at all times, you know, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? Okay, um, getting a gauge of, of the particular complaint. Great. And I know oftentimes during a standard lameness exam, practitioners might utilize a nerve block before going to imaging. Is this something that you would ever recommend when looking at back issues? Nerve blocking in backs is a challenging one. The reason I say that is that we have some good quality studies out there that show that the application of local anesthetic to the back in perfectly normal, non-painful, orthopedically normal horses dramatically changes the biomechanics of the back. And so if we are applying a a diagnostic technique and local anaesthetic um, to a back that's going to change it regardless of whether it is painful or not, that can be quite challenging because typically when we're using local anaesthetic, we're trying to take away sensation to an area as a part of a diagnostic process to see if we uh, take away the pain, take away the sensation of a particular region, did the horse go sound or, you know, did the did the movement, the asymmetry become more symmetrical or did it significantly change? So that's how we typically use diagnostic analgesia, the nerve block, But the challenge with the back is that using analgesia in a perfectly normal horse, studies have shown that the back biomechanics dramatically change because those muscles in and around our back are either active or passively involved with the flexion extension. So there are plenty of veterinarians out there and a school of thought that local anesthetic is not appropriate in the back. In my hands, in in very small, limited cases, it can be of help. If we, for example, are trying to rule out a very specific area in the back for what we've kind of gone through our diagnostic processes and we believe this to be the particular problem, um, you know, just jumping ahead a little bit, but if we think of it potentially as one particular area of overriding dorsal spinous processes or kissing spines, and we have a very obvious performance problem. So for example, a horse just can't canter, refuses to canter. If we use our local anesthetic very precisely in that very close location with a very small volume, and we see a dramatic change, that might convince us more likely that surgery is appropriate. Or if we have something that is extremely obvious, for example, a horse that just simply refuses to canter on one particular lead or is violently reactive to one particular type of movement and we feel like the back is the process, potentially that can be a place where diagnostic analgesia can be appropriate in my hands you know i would use it very 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 rarely and i think the bulk of the evidence would say that when we're thinking about subtle performance problems subtle movement problems it can easily provide false positives um, and when being used by practitioners it needs to be cautiously used because we've got these studies to show that 
local anesthetic in a normal back, in a normal horse, dramatically changes biomechanics. Yeah, I think that's great insight and very important for practitioners to remember. So you've gone through your initial exam and you're at the point of, you know, wanting to go into some further diagnostics. What type of initial imaging might you perform based on the initial exam? So in terms of diagnostic imaging, typically uh, we start with digital radiography. So radiographing the dorsal spinous processes of the back is now quite easily achieved in the field and quite reliably achieved with relatively good image quality. Um, So that's typically where veterinarians start. It's important to put a caveat onto this part of the diagnosis in terms of radiography of the dorsal spinous processes is that we've got plenty of studies out there that show the relationship between radiographic abnormalities of the back in terms of the dorsal spinous process are poorly correlated to pain uh, and issues associated with the back. And when we say that, we have plenty of horses have overriding dorsal spinous processes, kissing spines, significant radiographic abnormalities such as sclerosis, lysis, you know, shape change, and they will have low levels or no levels of pain just as frequently as you will see horses that have minimal radiographic changes, um, minimal radiographic evidence of overriding or impinging dorsal spinous processes, um, kissing spines, but they have a large degree of pain. So the relationship is poor, as in you can have bad x-rays, but not very painful. You can also have quite subtle or normal radiographs with back pain. So it's a part of our process, but it can't be relied on too heavily. As an interesting note, Um, the association of European equine veterinary uh, practitioners actually advises against taking radiographs of the dorsal spinous processes in a pre-purchase exam. That's a whole different kettle of fish, but it's just something to to remember that there there is a a little bit of different uh, advice out there in terms of how helpful dorsal spinous process radiography is. But our take-home message is that the relationship is poor and so the radiographs can be very helpful. However, they can provide false positives and false negatives. If we then lead on to the rest of our radiographic kind of technique of the back, ideally a comprehensive radiographic examination of the back will include the dorsal spinous processes and then it will also include radiographs of our articular facets and then also radiographs of our vertebral body. Getting good quality radiographs of the articular facets and particularly ventral aspect of the vertebral bodies is very difficult if not impossible in the field. Typically, it relies a large amount of power in your uh, radiograph machines, which often we don't have in the field. Frequently requires much significantly larger plates, which we often don't have in the field. And so 
to be absolutely thorough for our radiographic examination of the back, um, we will frequently need those to be coming into clinics, which would involve, um, you know, the use of gantries and, and, and big plates. In certain parts of the world, um, radiation health and safety is taken a lot more seriously than other parts of the world. And so, you know, trying to, to obtain these radiographs is really something just done in clinics where you can be um, exposed less to the radiation. Um, certainly some machines, some uh, ambulatory uh, machines can get some sections of the, of the ventral aspect in the vertebral body. And with certain angles and techniques, you can highlight the um, articular facets, but it is challenging. So most people were just X-raying the DSPs Ideally, we're radiographing everything. And so that kind of is our radiographic technique. And then we have ultrasonography. Um, ultrasonography can be very helpful. In order to become astute at ultrasonography of the back, I thoroughly recommend people attend um, you know, more advanced workshops in this particular area. There's lots to look at, muscles, uh, ligaments, but we can look at the soft tissues of the back. And then also what we can do is we can be looking at the articular facets. Um, so similar to looking ultrasonographically through our articular facets of the cervical spine, we can be looking at the articular facets associated within our back. And that can be um, a nice technique to be looking at surface bony abnormalities potentially associated with arthritic changes deeper down that frequently our radiographs can't see. And then because we have the ability um, with ultrasound to diagnose, we then have the ability to use our ultrasonography as targeted uh, treatment as well. And then that leads us to our next diagnostic modality is scintigraphy. So nuclear scintigraphy, a bone scan. Um, so injecting our um, radioactive components, which then uh, lodge themselves in metabolically active areas of the bone. And then we use our um, scintigraphy machine to highlight those. Um, scintigraphy is, is often thought of a little bit more as a physiological um, assessment as opposed to the other two, which are more anatomical assessments. Scintigraphy can be extremely helpful. It can find areas that we simply can't uh, image any other way. We see hotspots, so areas of increased radiopharmaceutical uptake, IRU, um, in areas that we would otherwise not think about. And it can be helpful in trying to determine what is significant and what is not significant on other diagnostic modalities. It's very helpful. However, at times, in more chronic cases, it may be a little misleading. It highlights areas that are metabolically active. Um, occasionally, back pain and these type of back-related problems may not necessarily always light up on scintigraphy because they may not be currently metabolically active. They may be in such a chronic state. Um, remembering that the back is supported by muscles and there's a large amount of soft tissue as well as the bony uh, components. So it's very helpful, but not always will give you the answer. And so 
backs in terms of diagnostic imaging are challenging. Each of the modalities have their pros and cons. When you put them all together, it's extremely helpful to give you a good story. Um, however, when you put them all together, it frequently becomes expensive for, for some clients, which may be on reach. But understanding the pros and cons of each of those three different modalities, radiography, ultrasonography, and nuclear scintigraphy, allows you to use them knowing their limitations. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and a partnership with Equitrace which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurement when coupled with Merck Animal Health biothermal microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. So I'm just wondering about the order of the diagnostics. Would that be in the order you described, or would you possibly use scintigraphy to sort of inform where you might go with the x-ray and the ultrasonography? Yeah, so I would say typically it's x-ray ultrasound scintigraphy. However, in some people's hands who are wizards with the ultrasound machine, ultrasound will come early. If we have already gone down certain pathways, say trial treatments, a whole bunch of stuff, and we have a veterinarian with access, easy access to scintigraphy, and we have a client that, that is looking to try and jump ahead, then scintigraphy can be done earlier and then it may um, point us towards um, using our other modalities in a more target fashion. Um, the order in which you use them, I don't think is every horse is a true individual um, and every veterinarian will have their pros and cons and their experiences with all of them. I don't think there's a right or wrong way. Um, just understanding that all of them can be helpful and all of them will overlap. And each of them will hopefully then um, inform the next process that you go down if required. Great. So what are some common diagnoses that you make in horses that have back issues once you've gone through this imaging process? So in terms of primary back pain, the kissing spines, the impingement or overriding of the dorsal spinous process is, is your most common and your most classic story. Um, associated with back pain. Um, so that's kind of our number one classic diagnosis. Then we have things like arthritic changes associated with our articular facets. That is probably something that maybe we don't recognise enough. We then have a little bit, say, more unusual uh, type diagnoses such as, say, ventral spondylosis, you know, bridging on the ventral aspect of our vertebral bodies. We're starting to recognise those probably a little more. Um, at times, it's difficult to know their significance. And then we do have other types of soft tissue pain, um, primary muscle pain. We've got lots of ligaments um, associated with all of these. And then we have horses that have sore backs because of external factors. 
saddles that don't fit appropriately, riding technique that is maybe less than ideal, lack of strength and conditioning in through the back. I think we all know ourselves um, that you can have a sore back because you just have a sore back, whether you did something awkward to it, you know, more often than not in ourselves as people and then human athletes, sometimes they just have sore backs without a particular, you know, there it is, that's the answer, that's the diagnosis. Um, and when it comes to backs, we we have a little bit of a, a vicious cycle at times. So we have a primary um, cause that's potentially, um, you know, resulting in pain. And then we have pain. We have associated potential muscle spasm. Um, and then we have guarding and bracing of our back by the horse to try and protect it. Then that leads to our back not being used appropriately. And so when we're not using the muscles of the back appropriately, they lack development, they become withered, they can become atrophied, uh, myopenia, if you want to be technical. So then when we're not using our back properly, you know, we lack muscle mass. When we lack muscle mass, we then lack the ability to support the back. So then that's going to lead to potentially more pain. When we have more pain, then we have more spasm, then we don't use our muscles properly, then we don't develop them. And so sometimes us as veterinarians, we're coming through like well beyond the beginnings of these cycles. And um, in terms of the exact diagnosis, plenty of us will never give an exact diagnosis. We just know that this horse has back pain and we will institute certain treatments and management therapies to try and stop this pain spasm misuse cycle and then get the horse back on track because um, they're typically performance uh, limiting, not usually not career limiting. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm sure so many horse owners, when their horse has back pain, immediately jump to thinking it's kissing spine, but there are so many other conditions that can cause these issues. And I know that the treatment and rehabilitation plan for each horse is just as individual, but do you want to talk about some of the treatments that you might prescribe for some of these different back conditions? Yeah, absolutely. And so everything will relate in, unto each other. And Actually, back pains are one of those things that it's awfully easy to spend clients' money extremely quickly. And so sometimes you just need to um, take it back to first principles, think about what we're doing, and really add our add the veterinary treatment on top of the management slash rehab because they are all going to play off each other. Um, and so initially we're trying to um, stop that pain spasm misuse cycle if we can try and control that and then that will allow our exercises to be more effective and then our training regime to be more effective to then stop this cycle so in terms of treatments we can kind of group them into a little bit of like our medical treatment our systemic medical treatment our targeted medical treatment, and then thinking about our um, alternate therapies and then our manual therapies. So if we go down to our systemic medical management, um, systemic analgesia, so non-steroidals, literally just taking away pain. So using something like phenylbutazone for 
a short period of time to try and get through that acute phase um, to get through to then the more rehabilitative um, management phase. More often than not, systemic analgesia isn't enough. Um, it's just not going to cut it, but it's something to, to kind of include and think about for completeness. Other medical managements could include something like uh, methocarbamol, robaxin, which is a muscle relaxant. And so, like we said before, sometimes we have this pain and then we have um, the muscle spasm, the hypertension, and then that leads to misuse and bracing. So, sometimes providing a systemic uh, muscle relaxant allows some of that spasm to dissipate, which then allows the horse to be somewhat less painful and then potentially move better. Um, that is frequently a part of a, a multifaceted approach to back pain. And then in terms of our target therapies, um, depending on our diagnosis or potential non-defined diagnosis, we're thinking about uh, injectable steroids, um, injectable steroids with with other types of uh, diluents to, to bulk out our uh, volume. Um, and those type of injectables can be either placed in between dorsal spinous processes of question or concern next to, um, it, they can be placed close to facet, the articular facets, uh, simply at times just placed along multiple areas of the apaxial muscles to try and have a local effect in terms of anti-inflammatory and then trying to control that pain spasm cycle. We can use our ultrasound to provide more accurate placement of our needles and delivery of um, our medication, such as steroids. And then we have um, some of our uh, non-steroid options in terms of treatment and they can include some of our biologics um, so there's um you know there's some evidence and, and a growing kind of use of biologics in the back either alone or mixed with steroids um, and those type of biologics can include prp platelet-rich plasma as a natural type anti-inflammatory or you know other similar biologics such as uh, say prostride alpha-2 macroglobulin those type of blood derived inverted commas natural anti-inflammatories delivered into areas where we have pain, inflammation, spasm type thing. So they're kind of our injectable uh, therapies. Other therapies um, starting towards more of our alternate therapies are things like acupuncture. Acupuncture can be very effective in the back. It is drug-free, which um, means that we can be potentially be using it in conjunction with other therapies, possibly closer to um, competition time in horses that are competing in sports that have um, medication rules. Acupuncture working along that you know, traditional Chinese pathway or what other people may know as dry needling um, has good evidence in terms of managing soft tissue back pain. You know, the Chinese culture has been using acupuncture for more than 2,000 years. 
I don't think they would continue to be using such a, a method if it didn't have at least some val validity. Um, I don't practice acupuncture, but I frequently recommend it, and I think it is an excellent adjunct therapy. So another similar along that lines is uh, mesotherapy, uh, so placement of very small needles with an injection of a solution into and under the skin. Um, mesotherapy can be applied uh, drug-free with a liquid that is not going to uh, drug test or it can be used with um, other types of medications. And in terms of the way these work, it's similar to the other um, stuff we're going to talk about, but it's a little bit along the concept of the gated pain theory. So we're trying to overstimulate the nerves with a non-noxious stimulant to try and dull down their nociception, so their ability to, um, to perceive pain. A little bit like if you bump your head, you rub your head and, and it feels better it's because you're overstimulating, overstimulating those nerves with a non-noxious stimulus to then turn off the nociception, the pain's perception in those nerves. And so mesotherapy, acupuncture, shockwave, um, you know, even to a certain extent, the manual therapies are about trying to provide along that concept of what we call the gated pain theory. And so um, non-needle options in terms of managing back pain um, can include shockwave. Shockwave can be very effective um, in providing an analgesic uh, component to uh, the back, literally numbing it out, making it feel better. Um, with the hope that somehow that overstimulation is bringing a little bit of uh, inverted commas healing process. I think back, back pain and neck pain uh, can be very effectively managed with shockwave. Um, at times it can be quite expensive. Um, it more often than not needs to be used with multiple other modalities. Everything in backs requires multiple modalities, but shockwave can be something uh, that can be very effective, certainly something that I like a lot, um, bearing in mind our uh, local competition rules. Then we have uh, the use of lasers, um, therapeutic lasers, whether it be a class three or a class four. Lasers are providing uh, an analgesic component to a certain extent. Some particular techniques of lasers can place the lasers over acupuncture points and you're using a non-needled way to then turn down our, our pain receptors. Lasers have lots of different kind of uh, ways that they're, that they're trying to provide a, a healing process. Um, I kind of very simply summarise lasers as using light and radiation to provide energy to an area, to the cells that are trying to uh, provide a cellular process that's hopefully healing. So providing energy to the cells to try and make that healing process more efficient. Um, reasonable evidence to show that lasers um, increase blood flow to an area, you know, potentially a little bit like shockwave, trying to bring a healing process to an area. They're vasodilating. They're um, blocking uh, radical oxygen species, so like antioxidant type effects. So pretty good evidence to say that lasers are helpful in certain places. And I think they have their validity in the back. 
um, particularly if people already have access to it. Therapeutic ultrasound is another um, drug-free option that we can use in through VACs. Um, therapeutic ultrasound is providing a little bit of an analgesic component. It's like the technical science component behind it is it's causing um, micro kind of stimulation in through that cellular and tissue areas, which are in theory trying to bring a, um, a healing process. It's also warming up the tissue with, um, and providing a, a healing process like that. Um, I will say that, you know, when I was playing rugby 15 years ago, therapeutic ultrasound was all the thing to try and fix your knees and fix everything. And then now those human sports medicine guys have their therapeutic ultrasound machines in the corner and they're collecting dust because lasers appear to be the current um, process in terms of trying to help our um, orthopedic injuries. So that's kind of like our, our, our more often than not in the hands of our veterinarian. So our systemic medical, our target needle, needle medical steroids is frequently the cornerstone of fixing backs. It's certainly the vast majority of how I manage uh, my backs is through steroids. And then we have our additional uh, therapies, um, adjunct therapies such as mesotherapy and acupuncture. Then we have our big machines. Uh, so we have our laser, our shockwave, and our therapeutic ultrasound. And then that leads us on to our manual therapies. So um, massage, manipulation, exercises, targeted movement, stimulation with our licensed and qualified veterinary phys physiotherapists and our licensed and qualified veterinary chiropractors. I know in my practice, we've got um, several licensed veterinary chiropractors and I frequently get them in to help manage uh, my cases, you know, alternating between different types of modalities. Um, and then where I'm from in Australia and in the United Kingdom, um, the only person I would ever refer manual therapy to in Australia and the United Kingdom um, are licensed veterinary animal physiotherapists. And so... In Australia and the United Kingdom, to be a, a veterinary physiotherapist, you must be a human physiotherapist first, licensed and accredited, and then do a master's degree in animal physiotherapy and then be licensed by that. So um, those are the manual therapies that, that I um, will frequently um, suggest and add into the mix. And so that kind of like sums up a little bit of our actual treatments and then it leads on to all of our exercise and management. Right. Are any of these modalities contraindicators? Like, is there anything that veterinarians should be wary about prescribing together? Uh, yeah. So in terms of adverse reactions or contraindications, I mean, you wouldn't want to throw a huge amount of non-steroidals at a horse that has ulcers. Um, even though the risk is relatively low, there's something to bear in mind. You have to be cautious with your steroids in terms of its uh, potential link and association with triggering a laminitic episode in a horse that's already predisposed to potentially having laminitis, such as a metabolic syndrome horse or a horse that has Cushing's. So using appropriate amounts of steroids and um, in a risk-based analysis of those type of conditions. The occasional horse hates acupuncture. So the 
a good acupuncturist will take their time and will use it appropriately. But some horses are just not amenable to having needles whacked in their back while they're standing there conscious. Having said that, I think that's rare, but it's something to bear in mind. Um, and sometimes the horse's back is so sore and it is so stiff and it is so, you know, those muscle mass, that muscle is so spasmed and so sore that you need to get through that initial horrible pain phase before you would then consider it to be an acupuncture case because the muscle is just so difficult and anything is going to make that horse really painful. Um, shockwave, the occasional horse doesn't like shockwave, but more often than not, just give it a little bit of station and you'll be fine or pop a twitch on it. Um, but with the principle, same with acupuncture, do no harm. Like if the horse really, really hates it, then try and find a different modality. Therapeutic ultrasound and lasers, I, I see no contraindications to them apart from potentially spending a large amount of money of, uh, of our clients. Um, I see no downsides to it. So I think probably our biggest risk is too much steroids. Great. So maybe now we can jump into the other very important piece of the puzzle, which is the exercise and the rehabilitation. Yeah. So exercise and rehab and management is the key. You know, the, the point of our veterinary management is to start the process, get rid of that acute pain, and then try and advise our clients on ways that we can manage this. If we're having to put steroids in a horse three or four times a year because it's got a sore back, we're missing something. There's something that we're either putting in the wrong spot, we've missed a particular diagnosis, or we need to think outside the bubble in terms of exercise and management. So exercise and management is really based around developing good quality top line, strength of the muscle that's going to support our back, and then core strength. So Core strength exercises, you know, there's a list an arm long and you can find nice resources on the internet. There's actually a couple of really cool, it's a really cool Australian equine veterinary physio group that provides lots of um, types of exercises. They actually have a thing that you can sign up to now where you can, um, you sign up to it and you literally type in sore back and it gives you all the different exercises. Strength and conditioning of that back is more often than not associated with good quality riding, consistent riding, and then doing things to try and engage those muscles. So um, just for example, something like the tummy tuck. So putting your hands, you know, at the back of the sternum, giving it a little tickle and pressing upwards, and then getting the horse to lift through its back. And you can see those apaxial muscles being engaged. So that's something that I will frequently get clients to do. It is time-consuming and it's an all-day everything from now until forever. Once a horse has a sore back, we want to fix it and then try and prevent it from happening again. So doing those tummy tucks, holding it, lifting it up from underneath um, the belly, getting them to engage through the back so that they're flexing um, through through their back and holding it for 30 seconds and then letting it go. Doing that three times, and if you're doing that at a minimum of three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that can be really great. If you can do it more, that's super. My attitude towards exercises, I prefer to give my clients a couple of exercises and have them do them well. 
than trying to give them a shopping list of things to do and they just get jack of it. Um, I know myself and probably a lot of people listening, we have orthopedic injuries ourselves and we are just too lazy to do the exercises to fix them. So we just hobble around. Our clients, we want to make it easy for them to do it. Um, Butt tucks, so um, getting over the gluteal muscles um, and placing pressure sometimes with your fingernails or just sometimes with your fingers to try and get that horse to engage its rear end, its pelvis, to tuck underneath and that that rear end tucks underneath and then you see that um, lumbar into the lumbosacral region into the pelvis, you know, flexing up again trying to press down, getting them to hold that for 30 seconds and then release. And if you do that three times and you're doing that three times a day from now until forever, you're going to gradually kind of get those to engage. It's a little bit like doing a plank. You know, you get you engage the core muscles, you hold it for a period of time and then you let go. Um, carrot stretches, so making sure that our neck is nice and flexible and and mobile left and right but you see that when you get that head to come around and eating those carrot stretches off the flank the back moves laterally and then doing those ones where you are getting the horse through the carrot stretches to eat the carrot from between its front legs at its sternum and then right down you know behind its fetlock once that neck is rounding then the back is coming with it with a little bit of a remembering that it's one spine head to tail so if we have good movement in lots of different places other options that we can do in terms of say lunging work um, is using our persoa um, so our apparatus that's going to try and, and engage that rear end, get good collection and getting to them engaged through the core using that rear end appropriately. The therabands that go around uh, around the, the rear end of the horse, again, trying to encourage them to engage through that region. If a client is, say, doing some exercises three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they're, say, lunging the horse once a week with a Pessoa and then maybe riding the horse twice a week, with an equiband that i mean you're achieving a lot if you're really if the client's really doing that that'd be lovely good quality flat work um cross training a little you know if you've got to jump a horse and it's got a sore back um finding a dressage rider to ride it once a week you know just good quality flat work is going to really help that horse um if you're talking about um you know other disciplines just good quality flat work and even little things like you know a nice engaged working trot in collection little things also to think about is um, square halts and then a rein back Sometimes that's tricky, but maybe you just need a couple of, um, a, a little bit of help from a, a dressage rider. Um, but when you are engaging that rear end, actually reining back, you're having to get that rear end underneath the horse. Another thing to try and build some top line, and it's probably more about building strength through the hindquarters, but also through the back, is um, simply walking the horse backwards. It can really strengthen those those muscles um, through the hindquarters. And sometimes an easy way to do that is um, when you're putting the horse back in the stable is walk it backwards five or six steps, pass beyond its stall, and then walk it forward into its stall. Um, the, using the aisle way can be an easy way to keep the horse straight as well. Um, and then 
I mean, there's so many things. We can go on and on about all these different types of exercises, but that's kind of our principles. A very simple thing that we can institute almost immediately is um, if if riders have the ability to use hot packs over the sore back, so physically warming the back up, I think for a lot of us who know that we've got sore backs, when you put when you put the heater on in the car, um, in your car heat seater, if you're lucky enough to have one, our back feels better. Um, so heating it up before you exercise, and then this is something that's a little bit different. But then icing the back after you've exercised. There's something that you don't often see, but it's something that I learned from a, a fantastic um, equine physiotherapist in Australia at the racetrack. So in Oz, I'd be at the racetrack every morning and sport horses in the afternoon. And um, he actually developed a, a, an ice boot for the back. And so actually icing the back after exercise, it's muscle, we've worked it, we've made it hot, we've made it a little bit sore, just like everything, you know, ice is our friend to get rid of that acute inflammation, trying to dull down that 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 inflammatory process. So um, physically warming the back up with hot packs, um, that's very effective um, when you know where it is. And sometimes it's put the saddle on, you know, tie the horse up for 10 minutes and put a hot pack on it or put a hot pack on it and then put a surf single around it, physically warm it up before you go ride it, ice it off afterwards. And then in terms of our actual ridden management, this is against everything the Pony Club ever taught us, but when we're warming up our horses, we want to go from walk to canter, avoid trot in our warm-up. And the reason we say that is because In our canter, for one stride, we're flexing and extending the back once. In trot, we are flexing, extending it twice. And the biomechanics of the way the muscles turn on and off and engage is very different between the trot, which is this bouncy process, and the muscles are trying to stop the bouncy process of the visceral abdomen going up and down. Whereas in canter, it's a little bit more of like an active, I'm actively going to turn those muscles on to flex it, to move. And so warming up, walk, and then canter. And then if we need to go back to trot, we can. Um, There are a lot of very talented and orthopedically challenged horses out there that if you go and stand next to the warm-up ring, it'll be a while till you see them trot if you ever see them trot, particularly in our show jumping world. Now, some of those are made conscious decisions to do that. Some of our riders just innately know this is a process, but you'll be surprised if you stand next to a warm-up ring in a, in a big five-star cl- five class of how little trot there is going on. There's a lot of walk and there's a lot of canter, and actually they're probably preserving these um, – these warrior horses a lot longer because they're looking after them. So it sounds bizarre. It's everything we didn't get taught at Pony Club, but warming up in canter before you go to trot. That's great advice. And it seems like the most important thing across all these exercises is just consistency and keeping the horse in good condition. Yeah. Good quality riding, good quality exercise. And and sometimes that's challenging from a veterinary point of view to try and institute that. Right. Um, and, and sometimes the best money that um, a, a rider can ever spend is 
getting a dressage rider in once a week to just do some quality yeah. flat work. Um, because ideally what we want to do is we want to do all this veterinary treatment, institute all of this, all of these exercises and management so that our veterinary treatments don't have to be as frequent. Um, we want to try and reduce the frequency and potentially reduce the intensity of it. Um, using all of these multiple modalities throughout a competition season, throughout a year, are all going to complement each other. And ideally, we want to get to a stage where we're not using steroids too much. We're using, say, some of the other modalities a moderate amount and not necessarily always breaking our uh, clients' budgets. Some of our clients is no dramas, um, and that's great. You, when you get the the carte blanche to to go nuts with it, you can really keep some of these sore horses going fantastically. But for the rest, the best money they are going to spend is time and effort and training on all of those other modalities. Right. Well, this has been absolutely eye-opening. I'm sure so many practitioners will appreciate having this really in-depth um, analysis of how to manage back pain, which is such a pervasive issue. Is there anything else you want to add on this topic before we wrap up? I think probably the best summary of uh, managing backs is that it needs to be multimodal, different modalities um, in conjunction with each other. Each individual horse will be an individual and each client will be an individual and they will have their own preferences and experiences with all the different modalities. Understanding that um, at times uh, a trial treatment is completely appropriate. This horse has a sore back. Let's see if we can just try and fix it by jumping straight to a type of therapy. That's totally legit and completely acceptable um, because our diagnostic imaging modalities are not always going to give you the exact answer and sometimes you just have to do a trial treatment so that's totally fine multimodal trial treatment is completely acceptable um, manual therapy is very helpful and the key thing is is that um, don't just whack steroids in it and say good luck um, whack some steroids in it and then give them a plan to try and improve the whole of the horse. Um, and then last thing will be is that everything is related to each other. It's one spine, neck, you know, nose to tail. So SI, sacro, the sacrum is going to play into your lumbar, sacral into your lumbar, into your thoracic. Your uh, spine is going to, you know, your cervical spine is going to play into that thoracic and then also distal limb orthopedic pain is not necessarily a cause but it's not helping they will be related to each other so making sure that when you are assessing your back that you are assessing your whole orthopedic exam trot up flex look for your um you know distal limb um, associated lameness asymmetries and then making sure that even when you are coming out to look at a lameness that you always do examine the back. Now, it might be really lame in front. You've got to fix that first, but don't forget to look at its back. Right. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elliot, for joining us on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And thank you to our audience for listening to Disease Du Jour. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Merck Animal Health, who gives us the opportunity to have these discussions. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can send me an email at csisson at equinenetwork.com. That's C-S-I-S-S-O-N at equinenetwork.com. Mm-hmm.